Welcome to another episode of Stories from the Atlantic. In the Botanical Garden, behind Iceland's parliament in downtown Reykjavik, Dr. Carmen Tersik, a world-renowned doctor at the Mayo Clinic, was about to record the public service announcement sitting on a bench. It was a chilly, sunny March morning, and we had just had breakfast across the street and a long conversation, including matters of the heart and its health. I'd gotten to know Carmen through mutual friends, but her name and work is well known in the field of medicine worldwide. The importance of our impromptu public service announcement becomes clear when you realize the situation of the world's heart, which by failing in various ways account for more than half of all deaths in the world. The Amazon rainforest has been called the lungs of the world. But what is the heart of the world? Panamanians refer to their country as the center of the world, heart of the universe, while Malawi proclaims itself the warm heart of Africa. The organ's symbolism has been used on various levels, from religion to sociology to geology, as in a recent BBC article referring to the Earth's center as its heart. Heart of the matter is in language what God is in religion, namely the center of it all, the bullseye. And so, when the hearts of 610,000 individuals in the U.S. alone suffered premature failure, with subsequent deaths in 2017, our little public service announcement felt in order. We started with a core triple prevention scheme when it comes to lifestyle choices. And these three things are being active, have a healthy diet or healthy food. I will eliminate the word diet, but just eat healthy and stop smoking. If you introduce these three elements in your daily life, I promise you will live longer and a very healthy life, good quality of life, longer, and will enjoy the beauty of the planet and your family and friends. Carmen is what you might call an authority on the subject of heart disease and preventive care, as well as doing research on the use of stem cells for regenerating cardiovascular muscles. Her work is with the Mayo Clinic's cardiac rehabilitation program and its benefits in controlling cardiovascular risk factors mortality and rehospitalization. Her title carries the well-known MD, as in medical doctor, and PhD, as in the highest academic degree given by universities. The world-renowned Mayo Clinic, a place that is both well-known for its long history and forward-thinking approach to medicine, a place where world leaders and the rich and famous seek treatment of extra high quality and patient care, though the 1.3 million yearly patients also come from various walks of life. To service over a million patients are 4,729 physicians and scientists, as well as 58,000 hospital staff and administration. Having established the credentials of Dr. Tersik and the Mayo Clinic, we'll let her continue to educate us on the very simple things that make up a healthy heart, but also some of the trappings of modern life. I would say a stress too. Stress is an important component that uh, have been shown to affect many diseases, but mainly the heart. So be able to control stress, that will be very important in your life as well. I asked her whether heart health was in worse or better condition in general, now as opposed to decades before, to which I got a dual answer. One of the next uh, healthcare problems will be addiction to cell phone, to the media. So we have, we see children, adults, but we see also in children spending more time in front of the cellular phone or the tablet just to connect with friends than uh, 
reading a book, spending quality time with the family and friends face to face, and uh, also being active. So that's, that is the next, I will not say next, it's already a health problem, the addiction to social media and the phone. In the last uh, decade or several decades, there have been a change to the wars, increase of obesity, and, but also slowly, in the last, I will say, few years, there is more conscience and people are more aware of the uh, negative effect of cigarettes. So the number of people smoking have decreased. And this is, uh, this is going to bring a good impact in healthcare. And people are also more aware of activity. Still, Still, we as a society in the West are far from reaching an optimal level of activity in the daily life. These can be simple things like parking a bit further away and walking, walk or bike to work, take the stairs, and does not require you to spend hours in a gym each day. And the common sense list goes on. Grill meat instead of frying it, avoid the temptation of endless snacks, but most of all... Stop smoking is very important, as I mentioned before, one of the key, if not the number one cause of uh, heart disease and many other diseases such as cancer, Alzheimer, diabetes, hypertension, name it. We can spend hours and hours talking about the bad consequence smoking. And smoking is an addiction, and it's an addiction because they manipulate the tobacco. The variables needed for a healthy heart include healthy food, representing a financial hurdle in many countries. We need to help to decrease the cost of healthy food because in some countries, buying vegetable or fruit, specifically in countries with heavy winter, is very expensive. So for, for some families, prohibitive. And it's cheaper just to go and buy pizza and to buy a hamburger. We discussed the various challenges stacked against the health of the heart, including a massive industry of unhealthy food and the large spending on advertisement. Recent years have seen some attempts going against this industry, most prominently the so-called soda ban, which limited sugary soda beverages in New York to 16 ounces in food service establishments. The ban was struck down by a Manhattan court in 2013 after a fierce reaction of the soda beverage industry, a huge blow to then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who had personally championed the cause and the need for awareness of the problem. The ban was said to be arbitrary and unfair, and it was pointed out that refills could make it useless. Michelle Obama, the former first lady, appeared as a prominent figure attempting to transform children's diets and saw some positive change during her active campaign, Move It, as the FDA approved a new and modernized nutrition facts label on food packaging, including information about added sugar during processing. But the pendulum swings and Trump's presidency has delayed the implementation of the new label, thereby limiting consumers' access to the information they need to make enlightened choices regarding their diet and health, or so it's portrayed by various health and consumer groups. A sugar tax was implemented in Iceland in 2013, but dropped a year later, as it was said that it had no effect on sugar intake. The issue, I'm sure, is complicated and big interests of importers and producers play a role. But I wonder if the fact that Iceland has been in a massive economic upswing for the last six years means that higher prices aren't enough to change the behavior of a sugar-crazed nation. The yearly sugar intake of 45 to 48 kilos per person in Iceland, that's 99 to 105 pounds a year, backs up the claim of sugar-crazed nation. The trend has been upwards for decades, excluding one year in 2014, coinciding with the sugar tax and higher prices, 
when it dropped to 43 kilos per person against the claims of the industry, saying it had been a failed tax. Sugar consumption is often measured in teaspoons per day, which in the U.S. is about 40, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil and Australia, 30, and the world average is 17. Iceland is somewhere around 24 to 28 teaspoons of sugar per day. But let's jump out of the rabbit hole and refocus on the subject at hand. Heart disease, a subject I took to people on the streets of Reykjavik in hopes of some insights. Casual conversations and inquiries with some older ladies included seven heart attacks suffered by the husband of one of them and the wife's fear of leaving him home alone with the possible arrival of the eighth. In the shopping mall Kringlan, an international manifestation of sedentary lifestyles and fast food, I spoke to a trio of friends, Sigurvin, Karl, Cesar and Gisli, who came strolling, seemingly stress-free, down the corridors of commerce. I asked them the obvious question, whether they had ever had a heart attack. Have you ever had a heart attack? Yes, yes. I have a heart attack. I have a heart attack. Sigurvin and Karl Cesar answered yes, and for Sigurvin it came on a Sunday night after weeks of discomfort and a plan to finally go to the doctor first thing on Monday morning. I asked how it feels to have a heart attack. Discomfort, great discomfort, and the feeling of suffocation, a pain leading up your neck and to the ears, along with the pain in the chest, though they considered their attacks mild. <laughs> Still, the time leading up to the heart attack had already meant damage to the heart, which begged the question of what had led to this bad state of the heart in the first place. The two survivors of attacks mentioned alcohol, tobacco and stress as the leading causes for their condition, something they have modified since. Kistli, on the other hand, went to a doctor to check his condition, which was fine, perhaps because of a good diet and plenty of exercise, even though he had consumed quite a bit of alcohol in his life, but never smoked. Beating hearts passed me by, pumping the average one gallon or around five liters of blood through veins of various health in people of all ages. A man in a wheelchair, who had been a taxi driver for years, said the effects of the job, including sedentary lifestyle and lack of normal sleep pattern, were bad for the heart. Simple as that. A young woman, perhaps 18, immediately spoke of her grandfather, who she worried about because of his bad heart. It was interesting to hear how even when asked about their own health, many seemed to project their fears onto others who had serious problems, as we seldom live in fear of our own slow demise or the risks that do not manifest clearly until they do. Two older women shared their experience with me while waiting for their taxi, one having been an early adopter of a healthy vegetarian diet in the early 90s, years before its present popularity. The situation in Iceland has been that of fewer deaths by heart disease, having gone from 350 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants in 1996 to just around 200 in 2016, with cancer taking over as the main cause of death in men, but the number is and has been much lower and stable for women, or around 100 to 150 deaths by heart disease 
for every 100,000 inhabitants. As I left the shopping mall, I met Dawlet and Dimash, who told me what happened in their home country when the government forced a new lifestyle onto a nation of herding nomads, namely the Cossacks. Uh, traditional diet, we are nomadic people, we eat preferably just meat. Our favorite meat is horse meat and horse milk. We usually eat because we are nomadic people. We spend all life uh, fighting to... Uh, do you know the Middle Age uh, history, like Chinggis Khan, Mongols? We, we were part of his army. That's why we spent all our life fighting. To, but uh, one uh, uh, doctor, before, um, about 20 years ago, he told, he told, uh, he told to my friend that uh, when our diet changed from meat and uh, milk food, we started to use like uh, macaron, pasta, eat or something, not uh, a lot of meat. The number of uh, heart diseases increased in, in our people because we genetically, we were thousand years, we, we used to eat just meat, horse milk, horse meat, horse milk. Just that's it. We even, uh, we, we've never eaten bread or something because we never grew up, we are nomadic people. But now we have a, a lot of uh, heart disease. From that moment, the number of heart disease increased in our people. But our neighboring countries, they, they are not nomadic. They have not the same problem, but we have. Although I could not find the research in question relating to the changing diet following the buildup of cities in Soviet times, but I did read an interesting research published in Social Science and Medicine, which you can find a link to on our website. The research looked at the historical trend of declining health and lifespan in Russia and the former Soviet states after the collapse of the USSR. The focus was on Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, neighbors, and the former often titled the Heart of Eurasia. The result was that the Heart of Eurasia had suffered more than its neighbor, mostly relating to high alcohol consumption, smoking and heavy fat diet. Its poorer neighbor, Kyrgyzstan, experienced better health, partly due to the limits the ruling religion, Islam, puts on alcohol consumption. The general trend in all the former Soviet states, now mostly independent, is the high rate of heart disease being the most common cause of death. Diet does play a large role, and it was clear from a little internet research that fast food had become a major health issue, leading to high rates of obesity closely related to heart disease. This seems to be the story of many developing nations, which accounts for 80% of the estimated 16.6 million deaths attributed to cardiovascular disease worldwide. But Kazakhstan is defined as a developing country in economic transition, moving upwards. In 2017, the heart of Eurasia took a major step into the future with the implant of an artificial heart, which, since the first procedure in 1982, by Dr. Robert Jarvik at the University of Utah, has usually been seen as bridging the gap until a heart transplant can be made. But with much more demand than available hearts, the artificial heart might become this century's next medical revolution if societies carry on the lifestyles that break hearts. Before we parted ways, I asked Dimash to speak Kazakh, a language I'd never heard spoken. Kazakh, 
Басқа қылатын тірлік жоқ, сол жүргеніміз. Жарайды. In short translation, they were going to Kringland, a shopping mall. One day, as I was biking past the well-known tourist spot in Reykjavik, I had the strangest coincidence when I asked a group of Dutch tourists a vague question about heart disease. Before I'd even gotten through my pitch, a woman in the group laughed in light of where she works. It's uh, in a hospital, and it's a department for only uh, well, people who have heart diseases and operations on the heart. And uh, yeah, some people stay for weeks and some people only got like something small and they go uh, the next day already. Really so depends. Well, most of the time it's more the family who's more, uh, well, yeah, who are more, um, how do you say? Zeg je dat? Dat de familie eerder... Worried that yeah. the family is yeah. more... Yeah. yeah, most of the time the person who's had like a heart attack or something, he's like fine with it. And then the family is more careful and they're like, oh no, don't do that, don't do that, don't uh, be careful with everything. Romara said there was a difference between those that had experienced a heart attack and those that had, as we might say, died and been brought back to life. The latter seeming to gain a new outlook on life. They're like, after that, they're like, I'm just gonna live my life, I'm gonna go on vacation, I'm gonna do everything. Because you know, like, the next day you're just gonna, uh, you know, if you oh, can, yeah, everything uh, could just be over. You never know. I asked her what she felt the patients of heart attacks needed the most from the staff, aside from, of course, basic and general care. I think it's more uh, focusing on the good things, because with all the doctors, they have, like, bad news, uh, um, what do you say? Yeah, they, yeah, they bring the bad news and all the bad stuff and the family's worried and everything. I think it's important to just laugh with the patients and, you know, make it a bit of a good time there. Not, uh, you know, not everything has to be bad in the hospital. And they really appreciate that. Yeah. The list of possible questions relating to heart disease could have been much longer, exploding the limits of this episode, but I'd like to ponder some of them. I thought about diet and how the various trends overlook the historical reality of places, like the Inuit diet of high fat, researched by Wilhelm Stefansson in the early part of the 20th century, or the change from hunting to farming thousands of years ago. I thought of the advance of genetic research on cardiovascular disease, which the Icelandic genetic company Deco Genetics is carrying out, among many others, and the role our genes play when it comes to fighting your own destiny, so to speak. And what about nicotine, the still very much present strong drug, now inhaled by growing numbers of teenagers and the young by vaping, and pharmacies selling its fair share of nicotine in various forms? I thought of the shades of grey making up life choices, the defined limits of serving of wine versus binge drinking, a bite of dark chocolate versus the Icelandic candy bar, with its 50% off on Saturdays, loading young and old with sugar. Energy drinks and the influence of extreme sports sponsorships, the minor league of an amphetamine mentality, which is the big, tough brother of the caffeine culture, which is the heart rate pusher of the 20th century, along with the stress of your life, your work, your expectations of what life should be, while your heart keeps beating, the ultimate hourglass, a ticking time bomb, which instead of exploding, simply stops ticking and marks the end of you. And then there was the question I thought of, but felt conflicted asking, even though the answers could have shed light on the perception of people versus statistics, in light of heart disease being the number one cause of death. 
but asking someone how they thought they would die seemed morbid and inappropriate. But here, in the safety of our episode, you can ask yourself the hard questions, the inappropriate ones, or perhaps the useful ones. What started as a public health announcement for this week's episode by Dr. Carmen Tersik of the Mayo Clinic on a sunny March morning in downtown Reykjavik ended sadly at the end of June as I was finishing the editing. A relative of mine, Brandur Björsson, passed away in his early 60s, having had a heart attack, with no prior history of heart disease. He was a farmer and lived on the farm, synonymous with my grandfather's family, on my father's side, in the northwest part of the country. The farm, Smáhamrar, á Ströndum, was Brandur's home his whole life. He lived alone after his mother moved to a retirement home last year, after the passing of her husband Björsi, or Björn Karlsson, but she passed away from old age, 11 days before her son. Brandur managed the farm, consisting of a few hundred sheep and his horses, riding being a great passion of his. I got to know him a little better last winter as I spent the night at Smáhamrar during a storm in February that forced me to stay put after a trip up to the West Fjords. The sleet turned to rain as night fell and two light posts on either side of the farm lit up the rain, falling like silver bullets from the darkness above and beyond. The Arctic Ocean made its way into Steinkrinsfjörður, a fjord historically receiving sea ice and occasional icebergs arriving from Greenland. Brandur told me of cold deers and sea ice, foxes and eagles and mink, all historical enemies of the sheep farmer, who in his case loved horse riding. He recounted many happy riding tours in the area with a friend in the next fjord, memorable and cherished horses, along with the various aspects of farming. The weather and icy ground kept me from looking at the sheep sheltered in the barn, but the farm, under Brandur and his father Björn, or Björsi, was rated highly when it came to the breeding of rams. Historically, the somewhat isolated region of Strandir was an important part of regrowing the national sheep stock after devastating sheep disease or Sjöldfjörveiki. The ram stikkur from Smáhamrar, a name both meaning very of humans, but perhaps also stubborn, was in 2015 father of 4.3% of the Icelandic sheep population, which in 2017 was 457,893. What I knew of his life was limited to the farming and a shared family history, going back to our mutual ancestors. There was Mathildur, great-great-grandmother of Brandur, the great-grandmother of my grandfather, my great-great-great-grandmother. She lived to 102 years, and her son Benedict, who after the death of his wife, left for America at the start of the 20th century, left his four children, among them my great-grandfather, in care of relatives. He never returned, though attempts were made long after to piece together his story of abandonment, a somewhat painful reconciliation of the past, but an important closure. The wind was still howling on that February morning I spent at Smáhamrar, and a grey sky weighed heavy on the half-snowy landscape. Brandur had gone out in the middle of the night to close the doors of the barn, we had coffee and breakfast, and my attention was drawn to the dark grey ocean outside the kitchen window, the same body of water that Brandur saw every day that my grandfather grew up by, my great-grandfather fished on, and my great-grandmother recalled fondly until her death at the age of 105. I left Smáhamrar around noon, up the slight hill, past the fields that would greet the Arctic turns in May, arriving from Antarctica, to Brandur's front yard, so to speak, as they had done for perhaps 10,000 years. And he did hear them upon their arrival on this unusually cold spring, with their high-pitched calls ready to attack anyone that ventured too close. And he did, 
like his mother and generations before, pick Arctic turnecks for food, like the ones I got when I visited in 2004, sitting in the kitchen with his mother Mathildur, or Mahta, looking out the same window, but at an iceberg that sat slowly melting out on the fjord. And Brandur did see the birth of the lambs this year, waking long hours during the grueling period when sleep is limited and all attention is given to the animals that by giving birth lay the foundation of each year's profit. He had help as usual and made it into summer, the summer we now say never arrived, the curse of 2018, the dreary, rainy, windy, cold summer of 2018, like referring to some catastrophic event of old, except now no one starved, but half the nation fled and flew abroad, chasing the warmth of a southern sun, far from the one shining all day and all night, far up in the Atlantic Ocean. On some unspecified day in June, he would have gotten on his horse and herded his sheep out to pasture, up the low Scotland-like hills of Strandir, where they graze until the autumn air turns chilly, at which point Brandur will not be getting on his favorite horse to herd the sheep. With no further thoughts, questions or answers about hearts, we end this episode of Stories from the Atlantic in memory of Brandur Björsson from Smáhamrum, the farm now empty and quiet, at the edge of the North Atlantic Ocean, the Greenland Sea to the west, and the Icelandic Ocean to the north, reaching up into the Arctic Circle. <laughs>